Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. This morning, we're going to talk about something that can feel massive, Goliath in our lives. Before we talk about that, I want us to read our passage first this morning. It's going to be in Romans 6. And uh, this is, Romans is not a lightweight book of the Bible. If you've ever read Romans before, you know it is full of amazing theology, depth. It's dense. It's like grandma's pound cake, right? It's just dense, all right? So we're going to read this. We're going to read 14 verses, and you're going to be like... Whoa, like this is a lot of stuff in these verses, okay? But we're going to unpack it together um, here in a minute. But I want us to read this first. Romans 6, the Apostle Paul is writing, and we're going to start in verse 1. He says, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you two consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we're going to be talking about the giant of addiction. 
Now, this is going to sound a little bit like uh, the, the week that we did on temptation. We talked about temptation, but this is a little bit different from temptation in that, that when we talk about addiction, we're talking about something that is a constant presence in our life, and it has a, a, a rule or a reign over us. Addiction could be defined as a strong inclination or a compulsion to do, use, or indulge in something repeatedly. That's the nature of addiction, right? It's over and over again. And we have lots of examples of this, right? The first that we might think of, right? We might think of like substance. Right? We, we think about alcoholism, right? feeling that you're constantly, um, you're, you're wanting to drink all the time. Or it could be um, drug abuse, right? We think of drug addiction. It could be a, a substance like tobacco or, or anything that is a, a constant, repeated thing in our life, any kind of substance. It could be work, right? You might be the kind of person that just loves work. And so for you, work is like you just never, ever want to stop. You work all the time. You become a workaholic. It could be entertainment. I, I learned this this week about our smartphones is that there's actually a phobia about smartphones. It's called nomophobia. This is an actual diagnosed thing that people are afraid to be apart from their smartphones. Have you ever heard of that before, nomophobia? Have you ever felt that way? You're leaving the house and you're like, oh my gosh, where's my phone? I can't leave, right? I can't go anywhere without my phone. We have nomophobia. But there's actually something addictive about cell phone usage. In fact, that's why Apple has this thing called screen time. I know other platforms have different ways. They're trying to combat this because the average person checks their phone 47 times per day. And it's like 15,000 times a year or something crazy like that. It's just consuming. There's entertainment addictions that we can have. It could be uh, sexual addictions. That's something that people battle, right? We, we have sexual addictions. Or it could be eating or food. Like you're just consumed with food. And not, it may not be that you're just eating all the time, but it's like it's controlling your thoughts and your mind and your, you have a food addiction. It could be financial or material. If you mix smartphone addiction with online shopping addiction, bro, I mean, it is, right, it's over for you financially, right? Just scrolling, purchase, you know, you're on Wayfair and whatever you're on, right? You're buying all this stuff. And we have financial spending, things that we purchase over and over again that, that are almost like addictive in our lives. There's a lot of subtle ways that we become addicted to things. And it's always taking something good and overusing it to the degree that it becomes compulsive. It's, I can't stop, right? And so we have subtle addictions and all these things have deeper roots. And here's, I think this is crucial for us to understand that behind every addiction, there's something else empowering it. This could be something like just pleasure, like I'm, I'm indulging pleasure. Another deep root might be I'm seeking comfort. Like I, I want to be comforted. You know, I'm, I'm working hard all day long. And when I get home, I just want to do this one thing. And don't you dare take that thing away from me because that's my thing. That's how I get comforted, right? Or it could be escaping reality. Like I just want to escape. 
Like my life is crazy, work is crazy, my kids need all this attention, and I just want to escape reality. And so we have things that we use to escape, or it could be uh, I'm trying to numb or avoid some pain in my life. Right, if, if you've come out of a dysfunctional family growing up, you're actually statistically more likely to have some kind of addictive behavior. Uh, it could be a substance or something like that. It's, there's part of us that wants to deal with the pain in us somehow, and so we find some crutches, right, something to numb the pain inside of us. I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I was in basketball offseason. Uh, I, I know I don't look like much of an athlete, but I was, I was okay on the basketball court. I wasn't great, but we were in offseason, and uh, we, we were in Austin, and we were running around the neighborhood around my school. And we get around the corner, out of sight of the coach, and my buddy's like, come here, man. And I'm like, okay. And he begins to dig something out of his sweaty sock. He digs out a patch of Redman chewing tobacco out of his sweaty sock. And something in me was like, yeah, let's try that. Like, let's do that. And so we, I, you know, I put the leaf in, I'm like, you know, I'm chewing it and I'm starting to spit and it's like, I'm starting to feel a little like buzz, like, ooh, you know, oh my gosh, you know, a little dizzy and um, I'm feeling good. And I, like I took it out real fast. It's like, I know people throw up when they do this kind of thing, right? And so all throughout high school, I'd see the upperclassmen, like they'd get that snuff can out, right? Sit on their tailgate of their truck. And I was like, these dudes are legit. Like these guys are cool, right? And I want to be like them. And so I started dipping snuff as a high school student. And then that pattern just continued in college. And then I started working in a recording studio. I used to own a studio and we'd be working for 12 to 16 hours at a time and just staring at a computer screen. And so I'd throw the snuff in and I'm just like, it'd be my, my little happy place. Like, don't mess with me right now. I'm just in my happy place. And I remember my wife, when we got married, because I was real discreet about this, and she's like, you do what? Like, she is totally grossed out by this habit that I have, and I'm like embarrassed, like, oh my gosh, you know? But here's the thing, the fact that she hated it wasn't enough for me to stop. It had become an addiction in my life. And she even had the audacity to suggest to me that I was addicted to that. And I was like, like, what are you talking about? Like, I can quit anytime, right? Every addict said that before. I can quit anytime. No problem. This thing don't have no control over me. And so you go a day or two days or three days or a week. And you're like, see, see. And then as soon as you've convinced yourself that it doesn't have control, you speed to the corner store to get more because that's what an addict does. Addiction is very powerful in our lives. It, it has a way of progressing in us, right? It, it's, it starts with experimentation. We, we try something out. Maybe we're in a social setting and people are doing something. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'll try that out. 
And it goes from experimentation to identification. We begin to say, no, this is good. This is part of me. This is part of who I am. This, is, this becomes associated with me. I begin to identify with that thing, whatever that thing is. And then that identification turns into an obsession. You think about it more. I want to do that. I want to do that again. And more consumption becomes greater tolerance for that thing. And then the greater the tolerance, the more the consumption goes and it begins to build and build to where it becomes full-blown addiction. And this is when something has control. We're allowing something to reign in our lives, to rule us. And here's the, here's the thing, if you're wondering like, am I addicted or am I not? I think this is crucial. Ask yourself, do I plan my life around it? That's the thing. Because I was so good at managing my addiction that I could do it once per day, but don't take that once per day away from me, right? Like I'm, it doesn't have control over me, but every night I wanna sit down on the couch when the kids go to bed and throw that dip of snuff in and I would just wanna be in my chill zone and don't mess with me right now because that was my addiction. And one, uh, one day, it was on a birthday, I was praying, I said, God, is there anything special for this year? Anything that you want to speak to me about this next year of my life? And it, before I finished praying, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit says, stop dipping. Like that clear. <laughs> I was like, oh, dang it. Like here, here we go. And what I began to do is break the habit. The Lord delivered me from addiction. And if you're in addiction, guess what? The Lord can deliver you, right? You can actually be free. Here's the thing about addiction. It's multidimensional, right? It's not a simple thing because there's a physical component to it. There's, there's an action that you're doing. Whatever that action is, if it's smartphone addiction or if it's food addiction or substance or anything it is, there's a physical, a physical component that is a dependency in your life. It's also a mental attachment, right? You think of that thing in a certain way as comfort, pleasure. It's release. It's escape, and then there's an emotional crutch. You're, you're holding yourself up with this thing. And then it's a spiritual agreement. And this is where we get into, I think, the, the real issue at hand, which is the question I think we should all ask is, is it sin? Right? Paul's talking about sin. Do not let sin reign. Don't let it rule. Now, is this sin? And how do we know if it's a sin? Because I think that's an important question we have to ask when it comes to addiction. Because here's how we think, especially if you're addicted to something. You think, well, everything in this category over here, these are all way destructive addictions. And so those are sinful because they're so destructive. But these over here, these aren't as destructive. So these are not sin, or I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, and we begin to sort of lessen the sin severity of the habit. We categorize things, and we don't ask what I think is the essential question, which is this, does it have control? 
Does it have control? There's a quote, um, a lady by the name of Ann Billington wrote a book called Freedom From Your Past, and she said, addictions are our attempts to artificially meet our own needs apart from God. The first and second commandment, if you remember the big 10, the first one was, right, you shall have no other gods besides me, right? God's saying, I am the Lord your God. The second is this, you will not make an idol to serve it. And he says this, because I, the Lord your God, am a, what, do you remember? Jealous God. He longs for you jealously. He knows that he's the only one worthy of your life's devotion. The only one that should have that place in you is the sovereign, the supreme, the king of kings, the one who can actually meet all those little needs you're trying to meet with your habit. He's the only one, and he is jealous for you. At its core, addiction is a form of idolatry. It's idolatry. Another quote by Edward Welch, he says, furthermore, the problem is not outside of us, located in a liquor store or on the internet, but the problem is within us. Alcohol and drugs are essentially satisfiers of deeper idols. The problem is not the idolatrous substance, it is the false worship of the heart. It's when we are saying, Lord, I need comfort, but I'm not going to wait for you to bring it. I'm going to go get it for myself. Lord, I, I have this longing for pleasure, but I don't really delight in you. I delight in this. Father, I, I need escape, rescue, but I don't trust that you're going to do that for me, so I'm going to go get it for myself. It's an idolatry of the heart. So, is it sin? Yeah, it is sin. And so with that mindset, I think we need to look back at this passage and just walk through it and talk about how do we not let sin reign or rule? Well, let's go back to verse one and two of of chapter six. He says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it. If you're taking notes this morning, the first thing I want you to write down is this. Grace is the power to change. It's the power to change, not the excuse to not change. Because here's the thing. If you're like, man, God is full of grace and mercy. Jesus washes all of our sin. It's like in the end of this thing, what does it matter? We'll be forgiven. So who cares? Like I have this little thing in my life, who cares? And that is a fundamental misunderstanding of grace. And here's the misunderstanding. The error of the thinking that Paul's talking about here is that we might say that because grace is there, it doesn't matter. And what that means is that when you are a believer in Christ, that you're fundamentally unchanged. You still want the same old 
thing and Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That's not how this works, right? Absolutely not. You see, there's a difference between faith and mental assent. Mental assent says this, these ideas right here, this Christianity thing, it's generally true, more or less, right? More or less true, I agree with most of this stuff here. This is more or less true, that's mental assent. And I'm a Christian because I more or less agree with what Christians believe. Right, God created the world, he sent his son Jesus to pay for our sins, he died on a cross, he rose again, he's returning someday, and if I believe all that, I'll go to heaven. That's mental ascent, right? I believe the ideas. But faith is different. It's, it's that plus something else. It's a conviction of the heart. It involves the will. The, the part of you that makes decisions that says, no, 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 this is right. This is true. This is something worth giving my life to. It's convictional in us. And what Paul is saying is that when we have faith, the conviction of the will, something fundamentally changes in us. And it's impossible for us to continue in the sin Grace brings a new birth. In Titus 2, Paul said that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And here's what he says it does. It instructs us to deny godlessness in worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. He's saying this, grace is not a license to keep sinning. It actually is teaching us to give ourselves more fully, more completely to Jesus. Our mission statement as a church is that we exist to glorify God and make disciples by bringing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, into all of life in all the earth. Meaning, we believe that the, the person who treasures Jesus is bringing the good news of Jesus into every part of their lives. The grace is instructing us. It's changing us. Let's move on. Verse 3. I, I want you to just to hear some repetition in what Paul is saying here. He's saying, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Again, he says it. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his Death, right? We will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6 For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. And down in 11, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the repetition of what Paul is saying? This is something that Paul uses over and over again in his writings, is that he repeats something like, it's like a machine gun, da, 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 da. you are dead. When I was um, in high school, a friend of mine, he, his family owned a ranch, and it was one of those that had the game-proof fences, the big, tall fences, and they had, like, really nice deer in this ranch. 
And so they were really careful about anything coming in that would threaten those deer. And so there are these low spots where the fence didn't quite touch the ground where they would put a snare in. If a coyote or something would want to come underneath that fence, right, that snare was there to catch it. And so the ranch hand would make the rounds. Well, I was there one weekend, and the ranch hand was showing off to all of us high school guys that were there, right? He had his 4 by 4 truck, and he's, he's like, hey, guys, hop in the back with me. We're going to go check the snares. And so we all get in the back of the truck, and he's, like, got that thing up on, like, three wheels, like, going over the rocks. And we're like, oh, man, this is so cool, right? We're, we're, we're geeking out about the truck. And then we get up to a snare, and we can see something moving, right? It's nighttime. He's got the spotlight. And sure enough, he walks over there. We hear like a little snarling sound. We're like, oh gosh, yeah, there's something in there. It's, it's a coyote. It's in the snare. So he comes back to the truck. You know, he's a macho man, right, ranch hand. He grabs his leather glove and his 22 pistol. And we hear just a, 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 a gunshot, right? And then he comes over carrying this thing, throws it down into the middle of all of us that are sitting on the bed of the truck, right? Just right in the middle of us, and it's still like twitching and stuff, right? It at our feet. Now, if I had done that, I would be like Paul. You would hear like, pop, 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 pop. Because that's what Paul's saying. Like, you're not just kind of dead. You are really, really dead. Like, you're really dead. Like, you're not even twitching anymore. Like, you died with Christ. It is over. And here's the thing. You are raised to newness of life. You see, we died to sin. It's dead to us. When sin comes back, the addiction comes back, you can say, you're dead to me. Right? It's not a part of you have been transferred. Verse 12, he puts it this way. Do not let sin reign. Don't let it reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. When a government is overthrown, we haven't experienced that in the U.S., but other nations have an overthrow of a government. When that happens, right, there's, there's typically some kind of coup, right? There's a leader comes into power, and there are kind of a second tier of leaders, and they are trying to bring the entire kingdom under the new ruler, right? They're, they're establishing a reign, And think about it this way. When you are born again, right? When you die to your old self, you're born again by faith. You're resurrected that you come into the capital K kingdom of God. You are under a new ruler, but you're still responsible for the lower K kingdom of your life. And the work of the Holy Spirit is a process that we call sanctification, And what that means is that it's still getting the word out to every part of us that there's a new ruler, there's a new king, that you're not under that old dominion, that old slave master of sin anymore, but you're under a new king of Jesus the kingdom of God. And so we are partnering with the work of the Holy Spirit to bring that message into every part of our being, to bring the lowercase kingdom into 
the capital K kingdom of God. John Piper, he was talking about um, addiction. He says, I think 99% of the people who say they're addicted are not really addicted. What he meant was this. If I were to come to you today and say, look, here's a million dollars, tax-free. Don't look at that pornography again, and I'll give you the million dollars. Don't have that drink. Don't do that substance. Don't obsess over that thing, and I will give you a million dollars cash. And 99% of us would be like, not addicted anymore. I am free. I will take the money. I will not do that thing anymore. He said, or we could say conversely, right? If, if a ISIS terrorist came in the room with a blowtorch in your face and says, do it again and I'll burn your eyes out, right? And you'd say, not addicted. I'm free. Thank you, Lord. I am no longer addicted. But what he's saying is that we often, when it comes to the king of kings says to you, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You say, oh, that's not enough for me. I'd really rather have a million dollars or the threat of my eyes being burned out. But when the king of kings who loves you, who demonstrated that by dying for you on a cross says to you, do not let it reign, you say, mm, I'm still addicted. I'm still addicted. I think that we use that word in a way that really becomes a crutch. We are not to obey its desires. I have a child. You might have someone like this in your family. I have one child who's my rule follower. He has a future in police, policing somewhere, I believe, because whenever we give a command to the kids, it's not that he receives the command. He's like, oh, yeah, mom and dad said. And so he loves to go to his brothers and say, don't do that, right? Don't, don't you dare do that. Mom and dad said, right? What he's doing is he's parroting our commands, but he doesn't have our authority, and what, he's, what Paul's saying about sin is that it's illegal for sin to keep ruling you. It does not have authority anymore. You have been transferred from that old way of life into newness of life, and the reign is not that reign anymore. There's a new reign, and it's the reign of God, and he is the only one who actually has legal authority over your life. Do not obey its desires. And then we get to verse 14, and this is the one that, like, I read it, and I'm like, I get it, but I don't get it. He says, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. And so I spent some time this week thinking and praying, like, what does that mean? And, and here's what I came up with. The law defines sin, right? It tells us what sin is. Grace defeats sin. The law reveals our deficit. Grace pays our deficit. The law convicts of sin. Grace frees from sin. The law exposes your defeat, but grace secures your victory. You're not under law. You are under grace, and thus you 
are free. And you're thinking, Chris, that's great. That's awesome. Wonderful. I get it. But how? Like, how do I do this? How do I walk this out? And I want to give you a strategy this morning that I believe will help you partner with what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Okay? The first thing is this. It's the, the, the age old. It's the first of the 12 steps. It's this. Admit you have a problem. Right? When Casey says to me, you're addicted to that, and I'm like, how dare you even accuse me of being addicted to that substance? That's how it is for us. When it comes to addiction, we do not want to admit we have a problem. So here's what I want to add to that statement. Admit you have a problem out loud. Out loud. Because when, with my battle with addiction, I would go to church, and every now and then I'd hear something like this in a sermon. I'd be like, ah, oh, I should probably stop, right? Then I'd go home and think, no, that's silly. I don't need to stop. There's not a problem. Why, why would I need to stop? Because I don't have a problem. Because all that stuff goes on inside your head. Where there's a war in your mind, thoughts are circling, and you're talking yourself into things and out of things constantly, and you have to break that by doing what James 5 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one, one another so that you might be healed. You need to admit it out loud, and not to somebody who does that thing with you. Okay, whatever that thing is, find someone who's not addicted to that thing and go to them and say, I need help. I have a problem. See, that's when actually healing begins. It's the most powerful step. Admit you have a problem. Denial ain't just a river in Egypt, right? And here's the thing. Whatever is denied cannot be healed. Whatever issue that you think, I just want it to go away. I just want it to just disappear. Lord, just make it disappear. I need that Holy Spirit magic wand. Just boom, it's gone, right? Here's the thing. You need to partner with the Holy Spirit and admit you have a problem, okay? Second thing, disrupt the physical dependency, right? There's a physical component, whatever that thing is, and especially if it's a substance, right, it clouds you. And if you're trying to like get free while not stopping doing that thing, it will never happen. You have to disrupt the physical dependency. Deeper work will need to be done, but only after we disrupt that physical habit. Matthew 5, Jesus is doing the Sermon on the Mount, and he uses this kind of shock value statement. He says, look, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, because it's better for you. It's better for you to lose a member of your body than to have your whole soul thrown into hell. And he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, what, chop it off. It's better for you, he says, because it's better to lose a member of your body than to have your whole soul thrown into hell. What he's saying is this. I don't think he's saying, go gouge your eyes out and like literally chop your hand off. Like our churches would be full of like blind people and like handless people, right? We would all be like, this is what we do as Christians. We like poke our eyes out and chop our, like, our hands off, right? It's just how, it's how we live, right? That, that's not what's happening here. What he's saying is this, take drastic measures. 
the king of kings says to you, do not let it rain. And you need to take a drastic measure. For me, the way that looked, man, as I was battling tobacco addiction, I would throw that can in the trash. And then four hours later, I'd be like, why did I do that? That was such a bad idea. I should still have that. I would dig it out of the trash can to get one more dip. That's the way addiction works, right? So I had to take a drastic measure. I would like dump it out in the toilet and flush it down. It's like, I will never be able to retrieve that again. You have to take a drastic measure, whatever that looks like for you. Right? You have to discern that for yourself, but take a drastic measure to disrupt that physical dependency. And then lastly, you need to deal with the deeper roots. You need to look back at those four things, those deeper roots of pleasure or comfort or escape or numbing and avoiding pain. And you have to ask yourself, like, what's really going on inside of me? Like, why am I tied to this thing? What is that invisible cord that's got me chained to this thing and how do I break it? We have to identify what that is and deal with the deeper root. And here's where we begin to renew our minds. Because once we break the physical thing, we've got to deal with the mental thing and the emotional thing and the spiritual agreements that we make. And we do that by replacing those things with truth. So I'm going to give you some examples. You can take these and use them. If, if you're tied to that thing by pleasure, Psalm 37.4 says, Take delight in the Lord or delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What he's saying is that there's infinitely more pleasure in the Father than you will ever find in whatever that thing is for you. You've got to replace it. You have to begin to believe like the Lord really is my pleasure. If it's comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. We have to begin to say, no, 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 I don't need this for comfort anymore. I'm, I'm not bowing to that idol. My God is the God of all comfort. He comforts me in every affliction. And we begin to just repeat that as our mantra. We're renewing our mind. If it's escape, escaping reality, right? First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And that means that whatever reality is for, for me right now today, I am to rejoice. I am to give thanks, and I am to pray constantly. I'm to accept whatever God is bringing to me today. I accept it and say, Lord, I rejoice. My kids are crazy. Thank you, Jesus. Help me to parent today, right? My job is terrible right now. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I give you praise. We're just saying, this is how I fight my battles, right? I'm not escaping reality. I'm thanking Jesus for whatever he's brought to me today, right? 
And lastly, if it comes to numbing and avoiding pain, uh, Jeremiah 17, 14, I love this. Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Why would you numb a pain that Jesus wants to heal? The doctor's here. (laughs) He has good medicine. It works, like for real. He wants to heal you. Don't numb the pain that Jesus wants to heal, right? So we renew our minds, right? Let me just recap. We admit we have a problem out loud. We disrupt the physical dependency, and then we deal with the deeper root. I'm going to close with this thought. In January of 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by Abraham Lincoln. This would guarantee that slavery would end in the United States. But it wasn't until June of 1865, a year and a half later, that slaves in Texas finally got the word. And even then, all across the United States, there were people whose whose slave masters were telling them, no, that's not true, you're not free. You see, You have been set free. Jesus signed and sealed your emancipation proclamation with his body and his blood and his resurrection and you are under a new king that has a different authority than that old authority and yet we still so often live like the ones that haven't heard about it yet. We haven't brought the big K kingdom into the little K kingdom of our lives. And Jesus wants you to walk in the freedom and the newness of life that he has for you. Can you be free? Absolutely, you can. When Paul said, do not let it rain, he implied that you actually have the power to do not. You have the power to do not through the Holy Spirit. I want to pray for us this morning. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.